everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Diana, and this is the Deathwire ABS podcast. For those of us joining us for the first time, this is our third episode now, exploring the various corners of the asset-based lending and investing sector. And today we will be discussing investment opportunities in commercial property-assessed clean energy funding, or um, better known as CPAs. I'm joined here by my colleague, Larissa Patton, our in-house expert of esoteric asset classes and subprime auto. Hey, Larissa. Hi, Diana. So we also have a great panel of some of the most active players in the space, including Alexander Cooley from Greenworks, Sandeep Srinath from ING, and Mansur Gwari from Petros. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. So before we dive in, Larissa, can you just give us a quick CPAs one-on-one, just kind of what is this asset class and why are we even talking about it today? Sure, I'll leave a little uh, uh, more of the details to the experts, but quite simply put, it's funding for energy efficient upgrades, renewable energy installations, disaster resiliency improvements, and water conservation measures for commercial properties that is then repaid as part of the property tax. And obviously this uh, will take a lot of breaking down, which is what we're here for. So just um, kind of to start off, CPA seems to have been gaining a lot of attention just uh, in the past even six to eight months. There have been more deals, larger deals, more participants and uh, more originators and even more traditional investors getting into this asset class. So I'd like everyone to share in their opinion, what is this growth actually driven by? Why is CPA under investor spotlight lately? So Ali, if we can uh, maybe start with you uh, and uh, if you could first please give us a quick rundown of what Grimworks is and what your role is in this sector. Greenworks is a commercial case-only originator. Um, my partner and I actually got our start in the public sector at the Connecticut Green Bank, building the first ever successful commercial case program in the country um, since 2012, which is when we started and passed the policy in Connecticut. Um, Connecticut has really become the model for many states that have chosen to implement CPACE, um, both in terms of policies and in terms of programs. In 2015, we started Greenworks because we were seeing a demand from states across the country to implement both the programmatic and origination strategies that we had pioneered in Connecticut. Um, We did the first ever commercial case securitization in 2017, um, which we've seen followed by five more issuances totaling over $500 million. So we're really thrilled to see the growth in the industry. Um, And I run at Greenworks, I'm the co-founder and I run all of our operations um, and capital market strategies. So uh, I'll jump into your question. Um, Again, we started in the public policy sector. I started in 2012. My partner had a decade of experience passing policies across the country for for residential and commercial case. And um, we attribute the recent growth in um, commercial case issuances to a couple factors. So first on the state and policy side, commercial case is a win-win for states that want to support their small businesses and encourage clean energy without public investment. Um, We see that states more and more are passing policies, setting up programs, um, and this is driving essentially addressable market share. One state policy is passed that drives us to our second um, factor here, um, which is as the addressable markets expand um, and borrowers become aware of CPACE, it's a real no-brainer for many borrowers. For small businesses, it allows them to match their operational savings with capital investment. And for new developments and new construction, it allows them to significantly decrease their overall cost of capital um, and ring-fence operational savings measures. 
Um, and third, um, we actually have seen a lot of standardization because we have our roots in the public policy side, on the public side of this. Um, we've worked very hard and invested um, very heavily in standardizing programs across states, which allows us to, um, at the end of the day, securitize assets from Rhode Island, um, very similarly to the way assets in our pool from Wisconsin look like. And um, we've been able to do that on the on the program side, um, and that's helped us expand rapidly across the country, offering CPAs to um, 14 states. Um, and fourth, those three factors have really created a situation where there's enough scale to access the capital markets, driving down the cost of capital, and creating a virtuous cycle um, that creates more volume, more investment from the capital markets, lower prices, more volume. Um, and I think the best um, data point here is in the first quarter of 2019, PACE has been 8% of the esoteric ABS issuances to date. Um, and of course, it's had less than two years of um, issuance of active issuance in the market. So we're, we're really thrilled with the growth. It's a no-brainer from institutional investors. It's an ESG asset class um, that has very good credit fundamentals. And we're seeing organic growth driven by borrower demand. And I think this just the question of standardization is important, not just for this sector, but across all other ABS sectors. And um, Sandeep, can we uh, go over to you if you have anything to add to this question? But first, just uh, introduce um, what ING's focus is on this space. Sure. Um, so ING is a Netherlands-based global financial institution. Um, we operate in 40 countries across a wide spectrum of products and services. Uh, in the U.S., we are primarily geared towards lending in the structured and corporate finance areas, and we also offer a full service of financial markets, products, and services. Um, I am part of a group called the Structured Solutions Group uh, within ING. Uh, our focus is PACE, of course, but also a few other esoteric asset classes. Uh, but PACE is one of our uh, identified asset classes that uh, we are looking to expand ourselves in. Uh, with respect to the CPACE sector itself and, and, and why it's such a hot topic these days, um, there's one thing that Ali mentioned that I'd like to pick off of. She mentioned strong credit fundamentals of the product. And so we are a lender in the space. We arrange financing in the space. So that is one key aspect as to why we are uh, so interested and enthusiastic about CPACE in general. Um, it's a low LTV um, financing product with real estate asset as collateral. Uh, we are financing property owners that are looking to invest in their properties and improve the properties. Um, and we are senior to mortgages, which is part of the low LTV uh, aspect of the financing. And that's a very hard combination to find in markets. Usually you've got like low LTV, but you have something else that doesn't work. But you've got everything here that comes together in a nice little package. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one of our main reasons of, uh, that we're interested in CPACE. And the other aspect is um, it's green financing. Um, ING, it's a big deal for ING. In fact, one of our mottos is to empower uh, people and businesses uh, across the world. Uh, and this, we see uh, green financing in general, and CPACE in particular, we see fitting in very well into our motto and our, and our larger strategy. So that's another big reason why we're so keen on, uh, on CPACE. 
uh, and with any other business, we definitely see the sector growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, that's We wanted to get in early, we wanted to get a foothold in, and we wanted to work with uh, the leading companies in this space. And, uh, and we've been in the space for like two years now, and we are very optimistic about future growth, and, and so far the performance has been on track. Leaps and bounds is certainly what we've been seeing too. All right, Mansoor, now to you. If you have something to add uh, on your opinion, what is this growth and kind of uh, spotlight driven by? And please introduce uh, Petros uh, before jumping into the question. Sure. So uh, Petros's um, involvement in the in the sector is one of the national commercial lenders. We're based here in Austin, Texas. Um, founded about six and a half years ago. Um, have grown uh, pretty rapidly across the many, many states that are now available. Uh, we have been the first to do transactions in five different states, so um, we do know how um, to set up these programs in the various states so that they actually work and are investable by institutional investors. And I think that's one of the driving forces, which is increasing um, the, the, the volume of, of seed pace. Is, uh, I think originally when some of these markets were set up, they were set up um, not to really work that well with institutional investors. And so now as time has progressed and there's more um, learnings from, from prior programs, um, the programs are being set up so that people can actually get active very, very soon, very quickly. So, uh, you know, in terms of the growth of this sector and why traditional investors are now interested in, you know, there, I think Sandeep hit one of the key points is credit fundamentals, right? There, there's a limited amount of credit exposure relative to the asset value of the properties. And, you know, what this provides investors is long-term, you know, very good returns relative to other investments, fixed income investments out there with a, you know, uh, with a low risk profile. So that's kind of what's driving some of the investors. Uh, you know, the other thing that's kind of helped in that is the fact that there have been uh, more securitizations. You know, there's been a public 144A, several, um, you know, single asset ratings, several pooled ratings. All those things help provide comfort to the investor group so that they um, can then get these approved as a fixed income instrument for their portfolios. Um, overall, the, the reason why the growth has is, is been coming along is the fact that there's generally more market knowledge on PACE. Historically, what's happened is that um, PACE has been around for a long time, uh, but it's been very slow growth because the, the word really hasn't gotten out. And even within the last year or two years, um, people are still just figuring out what PACE is. and um, I think the, the part that has really kind of taken off is in the last year, year and a half, um, the developer, um, uh, the developers have actually figured out um, what pace is and how it fits into their cap stack. And so as they do these larger new construction or gut rehab projects, they are now looking at this um, on a systematic basis across all of their portfolio on how to implement PACE as part of the capital stack. So, you know, um, and also the, the other aspect is that there's also a decrease in other parts of the lending stack. EB-5 has, has not um, uh, increased in volume. You know, there's been a, a pretty significant decrease in volume. So as some of the other parts of the cap stack diminish, 
And, you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, banks are also starting to reduce their uh, loan-to-cost ratios from these larger projects. So that means that there's more um, uh, there's more capital that either has to be put in as equity or other alternative sources of capital to fill the cap stack. And PACE is a good alternative to, to using their own equity. Absolutely. And it's a great point on like how the investor adoption is also driven by some of the you know capital markets activities in there. But can we stay with you for a minute, Mansoor, and uh, talk about uh, some of the challenges in the sector? We've, um, you know, been, we've talked through some of the um, things that are driving the adoption in the sector, but what are some of the challenges that are still there despite all the growth? Sure, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I kind of break it down into three different sectors. So the, the first point is um, we have to get the agencies, the federal agencies, to um, more easily implement or allow PACE on projects. So, for instance, SBA and HUD, um, I, I think there's been one or two projects done through HUD. I don't know if there's been anything done through SBA. And then Fannie and Freddie, I, I don't think anything's been done through them. So when we're when developers and property owners are looking at projects, a lot of times they'll they'll look at these projects and say, okay, in three or four or five years, once it's completed and um, you know stabilized, we're going to roll it into a Fannie Fannie Mae loan or Freddie Mac loan. The problem is if they don't have that option at the front end, they may or may not use Pace. So we've got to work harder as an industry to um, to get Fannie and Freddie, um, you know, up to speed and comfortable with Pace as an asset, and uh, also the SBA and HUD. So that that's kind of the first point. If we can get them to be more open to allow Pace in in, uh, in projects, uh, I think there'll be more property owners that would use Pace. Uh, the second thing is I think there's you know there's sometimes there's misconceptions. Um, a lot of times people don't understand exactly how PACE works. It, it, it's fairly complex. Um, and so when banks, so, you know, I think the big point here is about lender consent. So banks don't always understand because they're hearing it incorrectly from people in the marketplace on how PACE actually works and what it does for their rights in a, in a foreclosure or a bankruptcy or, or any of those kinds of scenarios. Um, they are reluctant to allow uh, the consent to, to, to let the, the, the PACE project uh, move forward. Uh, and I think the third part is functional programs. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think when some of these earlier programs were set up, um, they weren't as functional as they should have been. And, um, you know, most of the institutional investors could not come do deals in those jurisdictions. Um, that is changing pretty rapidly. So there's now best practices that are being put out by, you know, CPACE Alliance and, and people that are actually in the markets talking to uh, municipalities on how to do this correctly. And as that continues and more states come online, um, I think that, uh, that, will, that will change. Good points. Thank you. And Sandeep, you mentioned that, you know, as an investor, you wanted to get in early, get in quickly. So what's stopping others from getting in? I think there are, there are a few barriers to entry in this space, we think. Um, this is not a simple product. It is a complex product. It is driven by local jurisdictions. So you need to have a platform that uh, can be expanded to the national scale 
but also catering to nuances in each jurisdiction. So it, it's not a simple product that you can just launch nationwide uh, in the get uh, right from the start. Um, we wanted to get in early. Um, however, there is a lot of learning that needs to happen along the way. Um, you know, I personally, I'm looking at it um, directly, but then I have to then educate myself and educate the people up the chain to get the institution behind it, right? And that takes time. Um, same thing with the institutional uh, ABS investors, I presume. Um, but now with more education happening, I think we're, we're seeing trends in terms of uh, larger deals getting done, um, execution in the capital markets getting better, uh, institutional lending terms getting better. Uh, so I think on the demand side, I think the market is there. I think the challenges uh, that are being overcome but needs to continue happening is more on the supply side with volume uh, that needs to come in to fulfill the demand that we think is already there on the investor side. So from that perspective, uh, I think uh, Ali and, and Mansoor can speak more closely to it, but from my perspective, uh, I think standardization of programs is a key aspect of it. Um, from a lender perspective, again, the more diverse jurisdictions are, it's harder to put them all into one portfolio, generally speaking. There has to be uh, a very clear, defined set of rules and regulations in each jurisdiction that makes it easy to manage the portfolio over a long term. These are long-term assets. I think that's a key part. Mm -hmm. And um, I think other aspects like lender consent have gotten easier over time. I think people have gotten there for the most part, and we, we see that part uh, getting almost resolved. But the next piece of the puzzle would be as, as, as properties that are financed end up being larger, the CMBS market mm -hmm. comes into play because the properties themselves might be part of CMBS securitizations. And getting lender consent there is a little bit more tricky as, as to who and how that will get done. I think that's in the works right now, so that's another big hump to, to get over. Got it. And uh, Ali, I would actually like to hear from you too on this question because I think having like a clear idea of what the challenges are is uh, pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. So I would agree with both uh, Sandeep and Mansoor that um, awareness is a key factor. Um, there's an education process for sure that still needs to happen on the ground in local markets with building owners and on the stakeholder side, including senior lenders. Um, prior to the change in administration, we were able to um, do six to seven SBA loans. We actually just did another one. Um, but certainly the lack of clarity in um in guidance from these agencies that hold a large percentage of commercial mortgages are very, very important because it, A, gives comfort to other mortgage lenders and B, opens up a much larger um, swath of the market. That said, we started to see this become easier and easier. Um, many big lending institutions have um, criteria under which they will consent to C-PACE. Um, and so that's helped um, build awareness, kind of speed up the origination cycle for Greenworks. Um, and we started to see that barrier become eroded over time. Um, and then I think there's always, of course, the, the cost of capital question. For the most part, we're not bumping up against CMBS. I think we've had three deals where we've had consent from a CMBS lender, but certainly it's a much harder and longer process than your typical 
consent process. Um, and, um, and we also get the question for those types of properties, you know, why, why is this price, you know, on par or higher than my CMBS mortgage? And I think we've seen as the issuances have started to increase, the cost of capital, as Sandy mentioned, has started to fall, but there's still a spread between, um, for the most part, on, on some deals between um, CMBS and CPACE, and we would expect that that would continue to narrow. Um, so we're really excited about the growth, and I think a lot of these kind of barriers to growth will just, it's just a matter of time before they start to um, kind of lessen and lessen under um, as the industry grows and um, becomes more and more robust and more institutionalized. Uh, this is Mansoor. So, and we have seen a lot of progress on the CMBS side in terms of lender consent. We've we've done uh, several deals with CMBS consent, so that is getting a lot easier. This is Larissa. I wanted to talk a little bit about the numbers uh, I, for investors that are interested in the space, perhaps not too familiar. I wanted to give them a little bit of an idea of what type of returns and the average return, not originator specific, but um, Mansoor and Ali, I think it'd be great to give our listeners an idea of what kind of returns they can expect. Um, I'll kind of talk about a little bit like Ali just did in terms of you know, how it correlates with the CMBS. So th- these are fairly correlated with the CMBS index. And um, you know, I-, I think right now what you're seeing and what you just heard was there, are, there is a slight premium to the CMBS index um, as, as capital is a little bit less efficient. But as, as, as volume continues to grow and capital becomes more efficient, I think you'll see um, the the uh, spreads start to tighten, and uh, we should be on you know, at least par with CMBX, if not at a discount in the future. I would agree with that, and I would also say that there's been a very wide array of origination strategies um, and investment structures and pricing, in fact. Um, and so in 2019, there are a couple of originators, um, Greenworks and Petros included, that will have had um, almost five years of operating experience as a platform. And so I think we'll start to see bifurcation um, among institutional investors, both up and down the capital stack, um, in terms of uh, originators that have more experience, can show the operating history, um, and can show the benefit of their credit policies. Um, I think that that will start to see a little bit of benefit for pricing um, as more entrants come in as well. I agree with Ali on, on that point. Like, I think one of our initial challenges was to was essentially getting performance data for the asset class, right? But when we got in, there was hardly anything. Uh, but now, I think you know, we use proxy data to, to get comfortable to start with. Uh, but now with actual data coming in, that's kind of like proving out what we expected, and in fact, in some cases, better. Um, so I think that will go a long way towards like uh, more favorable credit terms and more favorable cost of funds uh, to, to um, CPACE companies. And I think and if you just look at the evolution of how things have happened, uh, from what we know at least, you know, there were a lot of like private deals getting done to start with that hardly anybody had heard about. That started to move towards uh, the securization market, albeit uh, at the private level initially to start with. Then we saw 144A happen. Uh, there are other private deals that are still getting done. I think that will continue to happen. But we also see um, 
more public deals in the future, which will just increase investor competition among themselves to get a decent amount of allocation in the given deal, which will further reduce spreads. So I think as with any new asset classes, there's a progression with like bilateral private deals and moving more towards the public side, which is where there is more investor competition. Uh, that coupled with better knowledge and, and, and better data uh, and especially for companies that have been around for a little bit longer and, and have their own track record to show will go a long way in reducing cost of funds. That brings up an interesting point, which is, you know, securitization in the space. We've seen a lot of different types of deals. As Mansoor mentioned, we've seen a 144A deal. We've seen private securitizations, other types of private transactions. And I just want to discuss the advantages of a private versus public deal and where we think the space is going. Sure, I, I can talk about that a little bit. Greenworks has done two private deals to date, um, and we've chosen to do that because the there's the, the CPA sales cycle can be fairly long. As Sandeep mentioned, this is a complex product and requires a large amount of education in for stakeholders, not just on the borrower side, but also on the capital market side. Um, so as we've kind of done the analysis, we've decided that the private deals help a lot because there's a level of discussion between um, Greenworth and our investor um, that um, you don't get with a public deal. Um, and we haven't actually seen it impact our cost of funds. Um, I think investors are so excited to get into the space because um, of all of the factors that we mentioned before, the high credit quality relative to yield, um, the long-term predictable nature of the asset class, um, the ESG, the green factor, um, and then the kind of underlying demand and growth. Um, we've seen the number of investors um, triple um, over the last year that are interested in, in commercial pace. So we actually haven't really seen a benefit to doing a public deal yet. That can certainly and probably will certainly change. Um, but the reason we've done private is just because it helps with the education on the capital market side. And, and we really haven't seen it impact our cost of capital. I, I concur with that. So we're also ones that have done all private transactions, whether it be single asset or the pools. All of that, all of them have been private, and uh, part of it is because of our close ties with our investor group, and um, they're very comfortable with that. Um, you know, I think at some point in the future, um, you know, we may head towards more of a 144A. Um, but I, I don't see that um, anytime soon. The way that we're structured. One thing that'll be interesting to see in the sector would be you know, there's new capital coming in at all levels of the capital stack, from ABS investors to senior lenders, all the way down to junior capital and equity. Um, that and the fact that there are like larger properties getting pace financing today, um, and then the required amount of diversification for a securitization may result in larger securitizations being done in the future. Uh, it's that you get the granularity in the portfolio, better execution and more cost efficient for the issuers to do larger deals. Um, and when that happens, it'll be interesting to see if there is, um, if there are like bilateral private securitizations with, with uh, large financial institutions willing to take down the whole deal or will the market move towards a handful of investors, at least in a 144A type transaction. Uh, depending on how that moves, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to spreads. Uh, I personally think that a larger deals will lend itself 
to uh, a handful of investors coming in, and that will just essentially be a bidding process with pricing and lowering yields for seat-based customers. Think that will also drive any secondary activity in the sector? Um, I think at, at the private level, I think there is secondary uh, trades happening, uh, buying and selling of portfolios. But on, on the bond side, I think like even asset classes that have been around for a little bit that are considered esoteric, bond activity in the secondary market is rather limited. Mm -hmm. So they essentially they're buy to hold portfolios. But this is a long duration asset. You have to hold it for 20 years, give or take. Uh, but the nice thing is insurance company loves stable long-term assets, so they don't mind holding it for 20 years. It's interesting because we do have um, operators in the space, as Ali mentioned, that have you know half a decade's worth of experience now, but this is a sector that has not gone through a downturn. And I think it would be interesting to hear how this is expected to perform in a downturn, how this asset class is expected to. I think I go back to what I think all of us mentioned in the earlier part of the discussion, the credit fundamentals of CPACE financing, right? So in terms of performance, um, my view is that it's not a question of if the investors will get their money back. It's a question of when, for the most part. Uh, the LTVs are so low. These are income-producing assets. Um, so if there is a downturn, um, I think... It is absolutely expected that there will be higher amounts of delinquencies and defaults. But at the end of the day, you still have a, a, a super senior tax level claim on real estate. Uh, and there are a lot of rules and eligibility criteria that governs what kind of real estate is being financed in these deals. So, so we believe those protections will, will essentially result in taking a little bit longer to get your money to recover your cash outlays, but eventually the, the, the recovery rates will be substantially close to 100%, minimizing losses. Uh, but the one thing to note there is this whole standardization thing, right? Like w one of the, the key issues there is like what happens uh, when there are foreclosures and defaults with respect to tax level claims, and each jurisdiction is different, who's supposed to do what. So there might be a, a little bit of sorting out to do in terms of like who's responsible for what in instances like that. But for the most part, we just think it's a question of when versus if. Uh, Mansoor and Ali, from an originator's perspective, are these questions that you get from investors? And um, if so, what are some of the measures that you've taken to safeguard yourself through a downturn? Sure, um, I'll start. Um, you know, I think fundamentally it's about um, appropriate underwriting. You know, typically when we're doing these things, we're looking for very strong sponsors, strong projects, and we use a strong underwriting criteria to do it. And our underwriting criteria is driven, you know, by, by three factors. You know, we have got bank lines with people like Sandeep who we have a certain set of criteria that we have to underwrite to. We've got rating agencies that we're dealing with on a daily basis that they have to know that these things are being underwritten correctly so that they can rate them. And thirdly, we've got investor groups that are behind us saying, okay, if we're going to buy this stuff, it has to look like this. So we've got, you know, kind of at least a minimum set of underwriting criteria that we have with three different groups. And then we take that and we go one step further when we're doing our, our, our underwriting for ourselves. So um, we, we do make sure that that is kind of the key to, to driving this. And if we do that correctly, 
um, and we're choosing the right projects, then in a downturn, we actually um, think that we're going to perform fairly well. And like Sandeep said, I, I think the, the, uh, the thought process is, I don't think there's going to be a loss on any of these things as long as you're doing them correctly. It's just a matter of timing of when you'll collect all of your money. Um, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, I, I think if there is a downturn, um, that might actually provide more opportunities for CPACE than less. I think that the there will be a shift from kind of more of the new construction stuff to uh, more of maybe some, some, you know, deeper rehabs and, and retrofits, but it could provide some opportunities for us to, to get more capital employed as well or deployed as well. Yeah, I'd add to that as well. We, we agree prevention is key. And at Greenworks, we've developed a proprietary underwriting um, system, which allows us to diversify um, across project construction um, and property types. So that, in, that increases the diversity in the portfolio, not just geographically, but also across sectors and stage in the construction cycle. Um, and then we also have proactively screened against um, potential risks that we see in the CPA space. I think the, the main concern um, is really one of abandonment. So one of the only ways you could really lose money is if the property goes fallow and nobody, it, it's not kind of an investable opportunity to make that property work, pay taxes and pay your pace assessment. So we proactively screen against things like remoteness, um, very specialized property type, persistent vacancy, um, and of course the strength of the sponsor, um, as as Mansour mentioned. So again, we we really want to get proactive, get ahead of it, um, and our thesis has always been this asset. If you do the appropriate screens, will perform very well in a downturn, and in fact may actually increase the performance because if there is a delay risk, um, we are a property tax. And to the extent you are paid, but you're just paid delinquent, you also accrue the fees and the expenses associated with that delinquency, just like a property tax. Well, I think it's fair to say, based on just everything we've talked about here today, that this is a space that is expected to continue to grow. Uh, but I'd like to get everyone's perspective on what that growth looks like going forward. Well, at least from ING's perspective and my personal perspective, and we've been looking at the space for like over two and a half years now. In fact, Greenworks was our first client from almost two years ago now. Um, and we knew uh, we were getting into an asset class that we expected to grow, which may or may not happen. And thus far, um, it, it has been a stable, steady growth versus what's happened on the resi side where there was like a hockey stick growth and now it's dropped off completely for various reasons. Um, but on the CPACE side, uh, we see a steady buildup uh, with, with uh, volume, um, with barriers being slowly broken systematically versus having a one-time effect of uh, one thing or the other. So we, we expect uh, CPACE to continue growing at a stable level and, and uh, with the more longer-term prospects in, in general versus a huge spike in volume year over year. Uh, so we, we expect a stable growth. Um, from, from our perspective, we do see substantial growth. I mean, what we've seen year over year in terms of what the pipeline looks like versus, you know, types of deals that are getting done now, um, you know, the, the average size of deals has grown fairly quickly. 
Um, we've actually even seen deals, and we're actually looking at deals that are over $100 million just for the pace side. So uh, there, there is growth coming. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that with the national players out there, you know, um, with Allie's group and, and some of the other groups that are out there, um, I, I think they're all probably seeing the same things we are. And um, so as, as this kind of continues, there, there will be um, a very good growth pattern. And um, the, the, uh, the hope is that it's being done correctly and underwritten correctly so that uh, um, it grows, um, you know, and the asset class uh, maintains its integrity of the, the credit fundamentals. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say there's still plenty of room for growth, both geographically and from a business development market awareness perspective. Um, and we believe we're poised for significant growth this year. Quarter over quarter, we've seen um, a tripling of volume from last year. And um, notably, we're expecting the New York program to come online um, soon, um, which will be tremendous for um, everyone in the industry in terms of volume. Um, as Cindy mentioned, we've been very careful to um, ensure that we're growing um, and maintaining our credit quality. Um, we are very systematic, um, as most of the national players are, um, in terms of underwriting and um, making sure that as we onboard new programs, they will fit within the requirements of a securitization and be standardized enough um, to be in the same pool as the other assets that we are originating. Um, we're thrilled about this year. We're, we're seeing a ton more institutional interest in the space as well, and I think that that will continue um, to drive significant growth as well because it'll drive down the cost of capital, which will drive up demand on the borrower side. Absolutely. And um, I feel like this is a good place to live this discussion. We've been through, the, we've talked through uh, what drives this industry. We've talked through some of the challenges and some of the capital markets activity. And I feel like this is a good roundup of what the space looks like today and some of the um, key outlook points uh, for the future. And uh, obviously, anyone listening in can reach out uh, to us, to the Debtwire team, or to some of our panelists to learn more about the individual companies or to learn more, more about CPA's investment opportunities in general and I wanted to thank you Alexandra, Sanjeev and Mansoor for being here today as well as my colleague Larissa for helping to put this uh, thing together and thanks everyone have a good day